0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: So much of this work and so much of my mission, uh, you know, it's like midwifery, right? And being able to pull out of individuals what they can't push out on their own, right? And I tell this story, I you know, have four children and I was there for the delivery of all four of my uh, children. And my uh, final born child, I had twin boys, Cameron and Caleb, and Caleb in the delivery room, his twin brother came out, Cameron, and no matter how hard my wife, Desiree, pushed, Caleb would not come out. I was like, what's happening? She's already pushed out four babies in her lifetime. And <laughs> Caleb was breached. He was turned around. You know, babies come out head first. And they weren't ready for a C-section. And nine minutes after his twin brother, Cameron, was born, Caleb's vital signs were beginning to drop. And the doctor said, I have to go in and pulled him out, right? And pulled Caleb out uh, by his feet. And so many of us leaders who have pushed out great things, but the thing that we are called to really push out that is gonna make a transformational impact in the world, we will never push out alone.
0: For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community. And that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Sean, welcome to the unmistakable creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
1: Trini, thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, it is my
0: pleasure to have you here. And I am very delighted to learn that you've actually been a longtime listener, which I didn't know, but I actually found out about your work through two of our former guests, uh, Chris Wilson and TK Coleman. And we will get into all of that, uh, but I was so intrigued by what you're up to. I thought you were doing a lot of really amazing work in the world. And I think that given the nature of your work, I think this is a very fitting question to start with, and that is. Where in the world did you grow up, and what impact did where you grew up end up having uh, on the choices that you've made throughout your life and your career and the work that you're doing today?
1: So uh, I'm a native New Yorker. Uh, I've lived in every borough except for Staten Island, and spent most of uh, my formative years in Harlem and on the Upper West Side of uh, Manhattan, raised uh, by a single mom, strong Jamaican woman, uh, uh, Deanna. And, uh, she just exposed me, uh, to, uh, a a great deal. Right. And so, uh, I think, you know, tr- traveling through all of the boroughs, uh, I've had a lot of uh, exploration and uh, my life has just been one of uh, so many dual- dualities, right? And dichotomies, uh, mm-hmm. living in Harlem and uh, essentially, uh, you know, being around just uh, all black people, right? And then moving down to the Upper West Side and uh, it being uh, uh, mixed uh, uh, and more more diverse. And so, I think it's allowed me to, uh, navigate, uh, different worlds. And, Mm -hmm. uh, I like to say, uh, I think I can effectively navigate both the boardroom and the block city hall and the corner. And a lot of that has to do with just, uh, my upbringing and just traveling and, uh, uh, surviving and thriving in different circles.
0: Yeah. Uh, you grew up with a single mom. Uh, you know, Obviously, I don't know, have any idea what that is like, but what misperceptions do you think that people have about that? Uh, what do you think the impact has been of not having had a father figure in your life? And just out of curiosity, have you ever connected with your, your father? Do you know anything about him? Uh, these are the things that just I, I'm very curious about because it, it seems like such a different experience. And then the other question is so often when uh, children are raised by a single parent, that ends up having uh, an incredibly detrimental effect on their life. And you seem to have transcended that in very big ways. I know because I've read your about page. I mean, you went to Columbia. you You seem to have overcome what would typically be an environment that could actually hold somebody back
1: so uh that's really interesting uh you know I think narrative uh is just a powerful thing and uh perception and uh I do think and particularly in the african American community right there's this perception of uh if you are raised by a single mom uh that is a life of uh a squalor and hardship and uh a, a difficulty and so um Quite the contrary. Uh, my mother, who, uh, is, I guess, the first entrepreneur, uh, and creative, uh, in my life was very resilient and resourceful. And, uh, what was interesting is that, uh, early on, um, she found, uh, someone that took care of, uh, children, right? So we were living in the South Bronx and she found this woman, uh, Lillian Smith, uh, who uh, took care of uh, uh, other kids, right? And Lillian, uh, we called Lel was a classic uh, 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 big mom, uh, big mama, uh, a pa- uh, matriarch uh, in the community. And uh, we grew up on 119th Street and Lenox Avenue. And so during the week, I was in Harlem, and on the weekends with my. Uh, uh, my mother. And, you know, this sense of community is really uh, uh, important in building a community. And while I did not grow up with my father, I was very close to uh, his uh, uh, his parents. Uh, so uh, my grandmother and grandfather on his side, they would, you know, they grew up, uh, they lived in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, and they would uh, pick me up and I would spend weekends uh, uh, with them. And so I never woke up one day to say good morning dad you know my 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 father wasn't in my life we eventually uh developed a a, a relationship and uh it was more of a, a intersection uh, than uh being intertwined I, I i would say but uh i think it's really important for folks to understand just because uh someone is raised by a single mom um that does not uh uh in, in some cases that's an asset <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, looking at my story from behind, uh, you know, backwards, uh, I think it was an asset that uh, I was raised by a, a, a single mom and uh, the resourcefulness that uh, she she had. And, and what's really interesting, I'm an, I'm an only child. Right. Uh, I do have a half brother and half uh, sister. Uh, my father eventually uh, he did get married um, and had twins. And what was really interesting, I had this duality of both being a single, uh, um, uh only child, but, um, Growing up with uh, Lao during the week, she took care of uh, a bunch of other uh, uh, kids, right? There's this movie out there. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen it called Lackawanna Blues by Hill Harper. And uh, he grew up in this boarding house. And Lao had a bunch of boarders. And uh, she also uh, ran numbers. And uh, Srini, I don't know if you're familiar uh, with uh, the numbers system, but it was. Uh, An underground economy uh, in the African-American community where, um, like today, there's uh, the Lotto and the uh, Powerball and the Mega Millions. Uh, In the African-American communities across the country, uh, there was uh, the Numbers. And uh, she ran Numbers, Lel, who was uh, my godmother. Uh, with the father of a notorious, uh, Harlem, uh, uh drug lord, uh, by the name of Nicky Barnes. And so his father, Roy Barnes. And so there was a lot of activity and a lot of folks coming in and out of the, uh, house. Uh, the borders, uh, one border, you know, lots of stories and characters. Uh, Mr. Archie, who was, who also lived in the apartment. This is one of these old Harlem apartments. There were like seven rooms, uh, uh, in the, the apartment. He was from Barbados. He was a Bayesian. And uh Mr. Archie's story was no matter what the number was that day, whatever those three numbers uh were, when Mr. Archie came home, if it was four seventy-five, you can guarantee Mr. Archie was going to say in his uh Bajan uh dialect, four seventy-five, I was going to play that number. And so I had a very rich uh and robust childhood. Uh yes, all around me there uh there were drugs, uh there was there was uh, uh there was violence, uh uh but there was still a sense of uh growing up uh in the uh seventies uh, and you know, uh late sixties in Harlem, uh, a sense of community. And yeah. that if I did something a block away um, on the corner of 119th Street and 7th Avenue, uh, there was a sense of ownership and community. And, uh, you know, the adults knew who I was. Oh, that's one of Lel's kids. Right. And so if I got in trouble and I was doing something I wasn't supposed to do, uh, adults in the community felt a sense of ownership and they would reprimand you. And by the time I got a block away to uh, where I lived, and this was long before a text or a a DM or or social media word traveled, right? And so I got reprimanded uh, uh, outside. And when I got home, I got reprimanded. You know, I uh, tease and say that, you know, I have a PhD from uh, UCLA, and uh, UCLA, for those that know Harlem, uh, is the university on the corner of Lenox, uh, Lenox Avenue. And so uh, my mother uh, just has had an a, you know powerful impact. She's taught me sacrifice. Uh, we uh, moved together full time um, at fifth grade uh, when we moved down to the Upper West Side. And, you know, one of the things it was a one bedroom apartment. And she gave me you know her 12 year old son the bedroom, and she slept on the uh, pullout couch and uh, just saw her be resourceful and uh just so I think it's really important that folks don't misunderstand that just because someone has a single uh uh parent uh that that is a negative or uh or, or detriment,
0: yeah. For the school teachers and people in our education system, Prime is completely free to help you with this transition to teaching online. We've packed it with a ton of value and actionable content, and we hope you'll check it out. Just go to unmistakablecreative.com slash Prime to learn more. Again, that's unmistakablecreative.com slash Prime. So I, mean, I think the, the interesting thing is you mentioned that you uh, you know, were around an environment where there were drugs, there were violence. And I imagine that there are probably people who, uh, I come from, you know, the neighborhoods that you grew up in that ended up on a very different path. And so there are two questions that come from that. You mentioned that your your mother is Jamaican. Was she first generation? And if so, I I wonder, you know, what impact being an immigrant had on the way that she went about raising you? Because I think that when you grew up in an Indian family, particularly, you know, our parents, like we're probably semi-close in age based on, on kind of what you're telling me. And my parents came here and they had nothing. It was literally, we're starting from scratch. And they had a very clear way of, of sort of educating us and, and making us go through the world, which was, you're going to be upstanding citizens of society. If we have anything to do with it, you're going to be, you know, more than that. <laughs> and so, so I wonder, yeah. uh, you know, about the immigrant aspect of it, but also then, you know, why do you get somebody who ends up, you know, the way that you do, despite being in a neighborhood like that? And then why do we have somebody like Chris Wilson? Uh, who comes from a neighborhood like that?
1: well, you know what's interesting um uh, is that there's a chris wilson uh inside of me right There's uh part of my chris Wilson story is uh, my story not to the extreme uh, i uh was never incarcerated uh but uh got caught up in the drug culture and uh you know this September I'll have uh, thirty years clean without a drink or a drug but um Growing up where I grew up, it was almost hard to escape um, those challenges right and I was just fortunate and blessed that uh, uh, my story didn't turn out exactly like chris wilson's uh, uh, story so uh, it, was, it was not like I was unscathed right so but I think the uh, the point about the uh, immigrant family and my mother coming from Jamaica and what was interesting is that her mother, uh, came here first. And, uh, then my mother, uh, uh came, uh, to, to the States and my mother's very independent. She was a, a flower child, uh, 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 hippie type, very independent, but education was paramount. Um, and, uh, she just, uh, instill that uh in me and one of my memories of growing up is that my mother always had books uh around the house right there were like uh to the ceiling high bookshelves and i was just surrounded uh, uh by books and uh i remember uh you know picking books uh off of the bookshelf and looking as a in my early adolescence and looking for uh the steamy sex scenes uh, uh in the book but this love <laughs> of reading uh was uh, was uh, was always uh, uh, there and when you think about education and decisions, uh, you know a, a transformational moment and decision that my mother made. Right. So when I moved down to the uh, Upper West Side, uh, I went to this middle school uh, called IS 44, which is right across the street from the Museum of Natural uh, History. Right. And uh, transferred from a school in Harlem uh, that was all black to uh, a, a diverse school and Asians and and, and uh, white kids and, and uh, after sixth grade in IS44, you had to make a choice between or you could make a choice between major math and science or major gym. Yes, major gym. And I remember when the permission slips uh, came home because all of my friends and all of my homeboys were like, yeah, we're going to major gym, playing soccer hockey tournaments and, and and all of that. And I remember coming home and uh, giving my mother the permission slip for me to uh, for seventh and eighth grade to be in major gym. And she looked at me and said, you have got to be out of your mind. There is no way you're going to major gym. And you're going to major math and science, right? And so for uh-huh. two years, I had a big resentment with my mother because all of my friends, um, and we talk about racial equity. Um, the dynamic was most of the black and Latino, uh, students were in major gym. Most of the Asian and white students were in major math science. It was just amazing how this, uh, turned out. Right. And, uh, you know, I, a lot of it, not by uh, accident. And so while I was uh, dissecting frogs and uh, messing with a Bunsen burner, uh, my friends, uh, and this was like on the same floor, but different ends of the hall, right? Um, Different qualities of teaching. And um, I had a resentment, you know, that, you know, I couldn't hang out with my friends. And then when it was time to graduate, um, and go on to high school. All the students from major math and science were going to specialized high schools in New York City, like Stuyvesant and Bronx Science and Brooklyn Tech. I went to Brooklyn Tech. I thought I wanted to be an archi- uh, architect and I had to actually go to summer school because I missed the exam by one point to get in. And all of the students from major, uh, gym were going to the neighborhood high schools and Many of them turned out fine or lived successful lives, but the chances and the exposure. And I saw that God, in retrospect, there was a tracking then. But that was a decision, um, that my mother made, right? Cause it was, if it was up to me, I would have been in major gym. And there's so many decisions like that, Srini, over my life that uh, others have made. And, um, I've just been blessed to have an amazing cohort of mentors and, 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 and people that saw something in me before I saw something in myself. And uh, so education was uh, really independent. My mother was a risk taker uh, and she exposed me to a lot. Uh, every summer, starting at six years old, uh, I was shipped off to a summer camp. Uh, the fresh year fund, um, and was exposed to, uh, uh, different things. And, you know, uh, when I was, uh, in my sophomore, no, my junior year of high school, uh, I was involved in this youth program called the Dome Project, uh, on the Upper West Side, which had just an amazing, um, change in my life, the trajectory of change in my life. And my mother allowed me to, uh, during my, uh, spring break, uh, do a project and take a bus from New York to California to visit youth programs in California. And by bus, me and another young man uh, went and other parents were like, you're allowing your uh, son to go across country on a bus? And my mother was like, yes, you know, it's going to be great exposure. And uh, so it was things like that, the risk taken that I think I, I inherited uh, as well. You know, there's one other thing I wanted to say about my mother is that my mother and father, who were never married, but they were both dancers. And, uh, that's how they met, right? And uh, that's how I was conceived. Right? And, uh, Uh, My mother was a a great dancer, and she was also a great seamstress, right? And uh, for a time, she made my clothes. You know, uh, I have pictures of, uh, you know, so when I grew up, I had a big Afro uh, like Michael Jackson, and she (laughs) uh, would make my clothes. I have pictures of me in a powder blue jumpsuit. That uh, uh, I won't post because it would be very, uh, uh, I would be ridiculed. And, Damn it. Um, I was going to ask you
0: to let us use that as your album cover for
1: the unmistakable. Yeah, 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 you know, and, and, but the thing about it, what she did was, and I learned to sacrifice, as I shared earlier, how she uh, uh, slept on the pullout couch in the living room and gave me the bedroom. Uh, wow. My mother. Decided to not pursue her artistic talents and and passions and gifts in order to uh, raise me and to work. Uh, She wound up working 30 years for the federal government uh, and she sacrificed a lot uh, uh, for me, right? And um, sometimes uh, or too often, uh, parents don't do that, right? And so I I, I thank my mother uh, uh, every day. Uh, for that. And I just recently uh, had my 35th college reunion uh, at Wesleyan University. I didn't go, I couldn't go, but they had provided me with a service award uh, just for my, uh, you know, the work that I've done since graduating. And, you know, and I sent that to her and said, you know what, uh, I'm not putting this on my wall, you know, on my wall, right? Uh, this belongs to you. And uh, there's just so many um, things that I've done over my career. If it were not for her, and my mentors and this whole sense of community around me, uh, wow. never would have happened. Wow. Uh,
0: so many more questions. So, you know, I think that one of the things, uh, that I, I, noticed, uh, when I was looking at your website was you talk about this idea of, you know, giving, uh, A voice to people who have been marginalized. And we'll actually get into what your work is about. Uh, But I want to talk about this idea of being marginalized and and how you define marginalized, what it means. And, and, you know, what does a person who comes from a place of privilege not really understand what it means to be marginalized? Because I think that, you know, at this point, you know, Sean, both of us are living lives of privilege. I mean, you're a graduate from Wesleyan and Columbia. I went to Berkeley and have a Pepperdine MBA. We'd be kidding ourselves if we, lied about the fact that we're approaching this life with a level of privilege that other people don't have and may never have access to. And, you know, part of why th- this particular, that definition of marginalized came up for me is because of, uh, you know, I think you, my guess is you've probably already seen it since it's in the news, uh, the, the documentary or the, the film about the Central Park Five. You probably yes. were grew up around that time, right?
1: Yes, yes indeed. I lived uh, like four blocks away. I lived in towers on the park and 110th and Frederick Douglass Avenue and, uh, the young men, uh, they lived, uh, four blocks away on fifth Avenue and, uh, Schaumburg towers. And yes, I remember that, uh, in 1989 when, um, it happened. And so, uh, Ava just did a marvelous job telling and giving life uh, uh to their uh stories and so when we talk about privilege and when we talk about marginalization um you know we have to go to the roots of uh this country and the 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 founding fathers and uh the uh in a sense the schizophrenia that this country uh is based on right and on one hand uh values of uh the land of the free and the brave and uh, the pursuit of happiness in one hand and uh but in the other hand uh the country built um, on the legacy of slavery and white supremacy and Uh, The spreading of an ideology that one race and and, and color is better than uh, uh, than the other. Right. And so when we talk about marginalization uh, today in twenty nineteen, we certainly have to put it in the context of the last four hundred years. Of uh, of uh, this nation, and I certainly believe that there are uh, a levels of of privilege, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I certainly, uh, and that's one. Of the, I have five questions that I ask the leaders that I'm associated with, right? And uh, one of those questions uh, is, you know, what are you doing uh, about your privilege, right? And. Uh, Yes, I do have a certain level of privilege, uh, being a man, being a black man, uh, graduating from an institution uh, like uh, Wesleyan University. uh, But if I'm pulled over uh, by police officers, uh, there is nothing that is flashing on my forehead that is a scorecard of that privilege. Right. Right. That privilege goes out the uh, uh, out the window, dependent on. The uh, context. And I just think that, um, this nation and, and we're just like, uh, still has to reconcile, uh, its roots, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's roots of, uh, violence and, 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 uh, slavery and that that continues, uh, uh, today. And so there are so many policies and structures and systems that, ensure uh that poor people, right, and 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 many of whom uh people of color uh stay poor and stay marginalized, right? And so I think that uh that's why I have this inner compass of uh doing the work uh, uh that I do lead in the campaign for uh, Black Male Achievement. And, you know, one of our mission uh, uh, mantras uh, is that, you know, there's no cavalry coming to save the day uh, in our communities, that uh, we're the iconic leaders that uh, we've been waiting for, the curators of the change that we're seeking uh, uh, to see. And what I have seen in my career, what I've seen in myself, uh, adversity, uh has become an asset right and being able to bounce back uh from racism and uh being able to do that as an individual is one thing but uh doing being able to do it as a, a people is a fight that we are still uh still engaged in and yeah. one of the things that I think is really important when i think when I say you know we're the iconic leaders that we are waiting for. Um, uh, the most marginalized people in not only this nation, uh, uh, in the world, uh, just have, I believe we all have genius, right. And, and, and that we all have a, a brilliance and, uh, the resiliency that I have witnessed, um, Despite the structures and the systems and the racism of, uh, particularly black people and black people in America is, a uh, phenomenal and it's, a, uh, uh, uh in- inspiring, right? And so, uh, one thing is, uh, and I've done this through my career is certainly being an advocate and a champion and, uh, lifting barriers and, uh, uh, creating platforms of opportunity for marginalized populations. But even more so than that is providing the relationships and resources for folks to, uh, become champions of change, uh, for themselves. You know, there's Amen. this whole notion called, uh, the power of positive deviance. And what the, the, the power of positive deviance lets us know is that the solution to the world's most intractable problems resides in the hands, the heads, and the hearts of those that are experiencing um, the oppression, right? And I've spent part of my career in philanthropy, and sometimes in philanthropy, we take on the persona that we are paratrooping into communities with prescriptions and uh, solutions. And the truth of the matter is that the solutions and the prescriptions for change Resides in those communities already, right, and so there's this whole notion, and Brian Stevenson talks about this a lot, right He mm-hmm. was on the uh board of directors uh when I was at the open society Foundations this power of proximity, and that the folks that are closest to the issues and the problems are the ones with the most innovative uh, uh, solutions, right? But resources are really uh, important. And we talk about marginalization, That uh, we're talking about uh, uh, political marginalization and education and social, but uh, economic mobility and uh, access to uh, uh, resources and looking at America's wealth gap is um really important when we have this conversation.
0: Yeah, you know, so there's so many things that that I wanna ask you about this. Uh, You may have heard the the conversation that I had with Desiree Attaway, we were talking about the uh, intersections of race, class, culture, and gender. And we're talking about, you know, how each of us defines racism. And I think, you know, one of the things I said is it reminds me of this moment when I went to the Museum of Tolerance in L.A. where they have two doors and one door says that if you don't have any biases, walk through this door, if you do walk through this door. And the one that basically says if you don't have any biases, walk through this door is locked. It doesn't open, uh, which is a really interesting metaphor. And I, I mentioned this to her, like it was, you know, even, even growing up, you know, my parents are, are far from racist, but there was almost this, like, you know, there's like among Indian people are, are, we're kind of like, okay, the litmus test of your parents' racism is bring home a black girl, or a Muslim girl, and you'll figure out how racist or how tolerant your Indian parents really are. Uh, mm-hmm. those are our two extremes for them. Like those are, those are like, literally you're kind of like, I could bring anybody home, but that would be kind of a litmus test. Uh, Despite how open-minded they claim to be, and so I wonder, when you were young, and also as as you've gotten older, what were your first experiences with racism? How did you define it, and and how has that changed with age? And you know, don't you think it's a little insane that two, three hundred years after this country is formed, we're still having this conversation?
1: Well, yes, I do think it's insane uh but i think that this, the construct of uh racism is uh i think based in <laughs> uh an ideology of insanity to uh think that a uh um class and color uh, of people uh are superior than uh another uh, a a race of, of people right i i think you know genetically we have more in common uh than we uh <laughs> uh have have, have differences yeah. and what was really interesting about my uh upbringing was that you know i was uh exposed to um and i talked about this dichotomy um this different, um, you know, and I think my mother was really intentional uh, about this, right? And so while uh, going to grade school, always to fifth grade, you know, uh, my classes and most of the teachers were all black, right? Uh, but when I went to summer camp, uh, it, was, uh, it, w- it was mixed. And, uh, and I would say that, um, the, you know, race was always uh, uh, an issue. Right. But it was a source of pride and, and, and you know, growing up and uh, uh, Muhammad Ali was uh, my first hero. Uh, and seeing a, uh, a black man say that I'm fast, I'm pretty and I can't possibly uh, uh, be beat and uh, to be bold as he was gave me a sense of uh uh, Pride. Uh, I was uh, very young. I was uh, just six years old or going on six years old. But I remember in Harlem uh, the uh, riots and uprising after Martin Luther King was uh, uh, assassinated, right? And that memory uh, uh, sticks in my head where there was a a Woolworths on 116th Street and Lenox Avenue and being able to look out the window and uh, uh, seeing people running and out of uh, the the wall works, right and so um i don't think that it's insane to still be having this conversation today because i think that we live in a system that is designed to perpetuate uh the conversation and to perpetuate uh the oppression of uh, uh of black and brown and and and, and poor uh, poor people. And until we reconcile and 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 disrupt that system and that ideology, uh we are not uh we're gonna still be having the same issues. Just just yesterday, uh there was congressional hearings on reparations. Yeah. And um <laughs> someone sent and posted a uh, a snapshot of and I don't think you know I think that we have to stay open to all parties, right? Uh but when we looked at one side of the aisle, uh, of Congress, most folks didn't even show up to, uh, listen or engage in this, uh, um, uh, discussion. Yeah. And so power and wealth, uh, is not, um, Easily, people think that, you know, in order for you to win, I have to lose, right? And I just think that that's just the equation and the way, uh, the system has been designed in the United States. And, right, and, um, you know, I, a couple of summers ago, right? So, uh, I, the summer of 2016, Uh, Even then, uh, up until that point, I I lived and clinged to this sense of idealism that uh, in my lifetime, uh, things would change uh, in this country. And I remember within a week, uh, there was the murder of Alton Sterling in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, by police caught on videotape. Uh, A week later, uh, Philando Castile, outside of uh, Minneapolis, uh, caught on a Facebook Live. He was murdered, right? Legally carrying firearms, right? And I had to uh, force myself to say, you know what, Sean? Racism is not going to end in your lifetime, right? Uh, This summer we are celebrating uh, in Hampton Beach 400 years uh, uh, since uh, first enslaved Africans were thrown to the shores, right? So here we are 400 years in. And yes, on one hand, uh, there has been progress, but at the end of the day, um, black and brown people are still uh, oppressed. And me coming to this realization, you know what? It's not going to end in your lifetime. On no. one way, it was disheartening. In, in another way, it was a relief and permission for me to like, you know what, do what you can while you are here. Pour into leaders, leave a legacy, and that you are part of a chain and, uh, and link and a lineage of uh, amazing uh, ancestral uh, uh, lineage that do what you can while you are here. Right. And so that's what I've committed my life uh, uh, to. Yeah. Uh, and that's why I lead the campaign for uh, a black male achievement. And it is really based in um, just the uh, premise that there is nothing wrong with black men and boys uh, in this country. It's the uh, systems and the structures and that, Uh, So much of our work is about shifting the narrative and focusing on the assets and uh, potential and possibilities of of black men and boys and and, and black community. And that being able to uh, and this is why I like just, you know, being on this podcast and so much of the work that we've done over the years has been investing in uh, film and investing in podcasts and arts and culture and being able to, what I like to say, become masters of our own media and tell our own stories, right? That yeah. there is a, another side than what is projected uh, in mainstream uh, media. And look, uh, When They See Us right, uh, by Ava DuVernay is a classic example of the power of uh media and our ability to have platforms to tell our own stories
2: ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi Mm, hello fresh
3: life is full of what-ifs some awesome like what if ai could fold your laundry and some well less awesome like what if you have unexpected medical costs united healthcare can help get you covered with health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans
0: It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level, too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Well, you're speaking my language. there's part of the reason I do what I do. Yeah, you know, I think that, you know, it's fitting you brought up the Ava DuVernay and when they, when they see us. So, you know, we're talking about the idea of being marginalized. So what I wonder is for how different that situation would be, you know, for a group of people who aren't marginalized, like how much of being marginalized is what put those kids in that situation to, to have them end up in the situation they did?
1: So I don't know if marginalized uh, is the proper context and framing, right? Yeah. Uh, I think that, uh, when we look at race and the fact that these were five black boys, um, and when we look at, uh, the, the, the victim, a, a, a white woman, uh, there is a long history in this nation, right, uh, of, uh, black people and black men, um, being, uh, railroaded and falsely accused. And so, Marginalize, marginalization has something, yes, to do with it, right? But I do think that the fact of race and that these were five black boys and would they, uh, have been treated the same way, uh, If they were five white boys. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would venture to say no. Uh, You may have seen just this last week um, in uh, Phoenix, Uh Arizona. uh, And, you know, I want to give a shout out uh, to the bravery of folks that are able to, in the face of danger, pull out their uh, phones and, and, and capture videotape of uh, these injustices but you may have seen when uh the police uh with weapons drawn uh with a report that a 4-year-old uh took a doll out of a dollar store and um how they assaulted and came up with guns drawn a woman uh with a baby in her hand and pregnant and would that have been done if they were not black, maybe, but I doubt it, right? And, and I'm not going to say that that does not happen. Uh, but I just think that the humanity of, uh, of, of, of black people, uh, in the United States and there's a widespread ideology that, uh, we are less deserving, um, that, um, we are threats and, uh, that, uh, we don't have a right and we can be treated any other way, which is absolutely a, a, a lie because we have a, a long history of liberation fighters, right? That, uh, say, no, you can't treat us any, uh, uh other way. And the, uh, when they see us chronicles that, Story, right? And yes, there are other factors of uh, uh, of poverty and legal representation. Being able to, uh, uh, you know, uh, if you have and can afford uh, the uh, best lawyers, right? Uh, that that you know, wealth has a, a impact. But at the end of the day, uh, I think it was less about them being marginalized and wow. being five uh, 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 black boys and a case that had to be solved.
0: Hmm. So you know I want to uh spend some time talking about the work that you do at the campaign for uh, blackmail achievement uh, you know I had a chance to look through your website and I guess really, what I want to look at is maybe particularly look at a story of somebody who's come to you and kind of the impact, and which I'm guessing you probably have dozens, um, probably to the point where we should probably have one of them as a guest on the show. Uh, but I, I wonder, you know, could you walk us through an example of of you know one of these youths that comes to you and kind of you know maybe somebody who was headed down a wrong path and and you know how you help course correct? Sure, and I
1: think it's uh, important to note that. So the campaign for black male achievement, we were launched, uh, at the open society foundations, uh, which is the philanthropy of George Soros back in 2008. And we were originally supposed to be a three year a campaign to improve the life outcomes of uh, of black men and boys and uh what's uh, interesting to know too often in philanthropy uh we look at uh generational and centuries long issues and say we're going to solve this uh problem in a 3 or five-year, uh, grant-making cycle. And, uh, the mere fact that we've been around, uh, for still for 11 years, uh, is a testament to so many folks, uh, spirit of entrepreneurialism, uh, persistence, uh, Relation, relationships. And uh, so we started off as a grant making entity and um, over the last 11 years have uh, funded and supported and helped to launch um, strategies across the country. We've invested uh, close to a quarter billion uh dollars, right? And CBMA, our focus uh, is really on the leaders and the organizations that are working to improve uh, life outcomes of Black men and boys. And uh, that's men and women. It's uh, uh, multi-gender, multi-race. And folks think of the Campaign for Black Male Achievement. Uh, We have uh, over 8,000 individual members and half of them are women, right? And so there is, I think of uh, someone like uh, a Willie Hamilton, uh, who runs the uh, United, uh, uh, Black Men United in Omaha, Nebraska. And, you know, we all have this sense of, you know, a need for belonging. And Willie, uh, eight years ago, said to me when we were in the foundation, look, I don't want to uh, necessarily get a grant from you. It would be great. I just want to be a part of the Campaign for Black Male Achievement. And by him coming to one of our events, you know, we do an annual gathering at the Muhammad Ali Center called Rumble, Young Man Rumble. Uh, And he represented uh, his city and he was connected at this convening with 150 other leaders from across the country. And he realized that, you know what, I am not fighting this fight uh, alone. Like I'm not building and battling alone. You know, one of my uh, mission mantras is that God gave us two hands for a reason so that we can build and battle at the same time. And so much of this social justice, uh, uh, racial justice work, we got to do both. We got to build and we have to battle. And uh, he returned back to uh, Omaha and, declared that, you know, uh, he was part of the campaign for Black Male Achievement and with his organization and began to get others in his city uh, engaged. And so there was this ripple uh, uh, effect, right? And so while it's a national movement, the change really happens uh, locally, right? Uh, It happens in in, in places. And uh, we say that, you know, Uh, your promise of place, which is our place-based strategy, is wherever you decide to uh, 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 take a stand. And there are so many leaders like Willie Hamilton and the young people that they uh, work with across the country that are exposed to this national movement and that they are the next wave of, uh, or the current wave of uh, social justice uh, leaders. You know, one of the things that uh, brings me uh, joy, uh, we, uh, have an opportunity to bring folks across the country to our, uh, convenings and our gatherings and to, uh, see a young man, um, like Ernest, right? Ernest Butts, who was a fellow, uh, uh, at the campaign for black male achievement. He never, uh, he was never in a plane. You know, he never flew before. And uh, two years ago was his first flight going to Louisville, uh, Kentucky, for uh, the um, Rumble Young Man Rumble. And it was kind of like the Roger Bannister mile, right? Once he broke that four minute mile and he had that exposure, uh, he's in Puerto Rico, uh, this summer and, and, and organizing and supporting folks that are still recovering, uh, uh, from the uh, hurricane. And he did some traveling last year. And so much of this work, uh, I like to, and so much of my mission, it's, uh, about, uh, you know it's like midwifery, right? and being able to pull out uh, of individuals uh, what they can't push out uh, on their on their own. Right? and I tell this story. I you know I have four children, and I was there for the uh, delivery of all four of uh, my uh, children and uh my uh final born child I had twin boys Cameron and Caleb and Caleb uh in the delivery room uh his twin brother came out Cameron and no matter how hard my wife Desirée pushed Caleb would not come out I was like what's happening she's done already pushed out four babies in her lifetime and <laughs> Caleb was breached. He was turned around, you know, babies come out head first and they weren't ready for a C-section. And nine minutes after his twin brother, Cameron, was born, Caleb's vital signs were beginning to drop. And the doctor said, I have to go in and pull him out, right? And pulled Caleb out uh by his feet. And so many of us leaders uh, who have pushed out great things, but the thing that we are called to really push out that is going to make a transformational impact in the world, we will never push out alone. We need to get vulnerable and be able to say as leaders, and particularly when we're looking at Black men, to be able to go to another man and say, or woman and say, I have something inside of me and I need your help to pull it out. And I'm grateful that I've grown up in a generation where I've seen a shift uh, around masculinity and gender norms. Uh, My father and grandfather uh, to cry uh, was a sign of weakness, right? To be vulnerable, was a sign of weakness and, and and to be afraid and to let somebody know that you were afraid, uh, was a death, uh, sentence in, 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 some cases. And, uh, we are, with the campaign for black male achievement and so many of our partner organizations are in a space now where this whole notion of addressing toxic masculinity and patriarchy uh, is something that is acceptable and necessary in our community. And one of our members is a guy named Jason Wilson out of Detroit who has a best-selling book. We just told his story. He'd be a great guest. Uh, it's called Cry Like a Man. Mm. And just really demystifying this whole notion of uh emotional uh sturdiness and not being able to share uh uh emotions. And I and Srini, i I tell the leaders that I'm associated with if you are not engaged with a mentor, an executive coach, and a therapist, you are at a disadvantage, right? And this whole notion of uh, addressing and pulling the covers off of mental health uh, in our community, uh, I'm just seeing so much more momentum over the years around this because to be Black in America, uh, as James Baldwin uh, uh, said, and I'm paraphrasing, is uh, almost to be in a constant state of rage. Or you know, a constant, uh, a, a constant state of rage. And so we need to be champions uh, and be able to share our vulnerab- vulnerability as black men and to say, you know what, it is OK. You know what? You don't tell a eight year old boy, don't cry and act like a man. He's eight years old. He's supposed to cry. It's okay to cry. And so what I am seeing um, just across the country uh, with so many of my peers and the next generation, that it is okay to be emotionally uh, uh, vulnerable. And part of our work, uh, we launched uh, three, four years ago, BMA Health and Healing Strategies, when we are addressing the health, healing, and wellness of the leaders. So many of our leaders came to us and said, I am depressed. I am stressed out. I have been thinking about suicide. And we said, wow, uh, this is the cavalry, right? These are the leaders, the hometown heroes and local leaders uh, that we are invested in to do the work. If they are traumatized how are we going to win? And so uh, we have just seen um, so many uh, investors uh, over the last few years um, say, you know what, this issue of healing and wellness um, is important. Uh, there's a Dr. Sean Jenright uh, in uh, San Francisco that uh, has really been crusading this notion of uh, healing-centered communities and schools. Uh, And so, you know, I'm encouraged. Uh, You know, I often, uh, when I look at the condition and the state and where we stand as Black people in this nation, uh, I often uh, say it's the paradox of promise and peril, because there is both a a peril that is still perilous in this nation uh for uh, a black man. But I also see so much promise. And I know that you've done a lot of work around, you know, where you put your attention, right? And where wow. you put your focus, right? Not that we ignore the peril, not that we ignore the liabilities, but we focus on the promise and the assets because I firmly believe that what we focus on uh, grows and we have to tell that story of uh, of promise and love and 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 and, and how we lead and uh, if we don't tell that story, uh, somebody's going to tell the story for us.
0: Uh, amazing. Well, uh, cool. this has been really, really uh, just a treat and uh, eye-opening, thought-provoking. One of those conversations that I think really makes us think and hopefully brings about you know uh, the start of, of a conversation for a lot of people that I think is much needed. Uh, so. Uh, I want to finish with my, my final question, which I know you've heard me ask uh, as a longtime listener of the show. And that is, what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: Well, you know, I, I knew you were going to ask me that question too, <laughs> right? But so, um, what makes you unmistakable is that a few things. That when you die... Your eulogy is such of how you lived your life, uh, what you represented, and the values that someone hears your eulogy, and your eulogy becomes their life's epilogue. And I think that being unmistakable is that we are he- called to do things that if uh, they are not done, through you and by you, they won't be uh, uh, done at all. And that there are things that people look to and people hear, and they say that is distinctly a uh, uh, Sean Dove. That is Sean Dove's a uh, 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 fingerprint, and that no one else could have done that uh, except for him. Mm.
0: Amazing. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and uh, sharing your story and, and your insights on all of the work that you're up to with our listeners. Where can people find out more uh, about what you're up to? And also, are there any requests that you have for our audience that they can help with, uh, you know, in terms of your own efforts?
1: Sure. So I can um, be reached at, um, go to my website, um, blackmaleachievement, uh, dot org. Um, I personally uh can be reached uh at sdov at blackmailachievement, uh, org. that is uh my uh, email address and uh, I am on Twitter and I am on on, on uh, instagram and um I believe that um this is not uh when we talk about blackmail achievement um black america's uh journey. Right. Uh, this is America's, uh, journey, right? And so there is something that everybody can do, uh, no matter gender or, or, or race. And, uh, uh, I would ask folks to go to, uh, our website and, uh, become a member, um, and join, uh, the campaign for black male achievement. Uh, there are ways that you can devote your time, your talent, um, and your treasure, uh, as a, an ally and a supporter and a member uh, in the movement. Awesome.
0: And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Did you know that every Sunday, our community manager, Melina, sends out 10 key takeaways from episodes just like this one? All you have to do to receive it is sign up for our newsletter. Just visit unmistakablecreative.com slash newsletter, and you'll get them delivered right to your inbox. Again, that's unmistakablecreative.com slash newsletter